Now, last week I started uh, the sermon by talking about how I'm bad with directions and how I miss turns and I miss signs. And so since last Sunday, I, I, I did. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm not going to tell any of those stories. But I wanted to bring it up because I, I use GPS and we talked about this before because it was created for people like me. And uh, the thing with GPS is you have to start with a destination. That's how you begin. You, you turn the GPS on and where are you going and the destination determines the course. And, uh, you know, the same is true, you know, back in the day when I used maps. You'd find where you were headed and you'd, you'd work your way back. And um, The scriptures in Genesis give us a picture of the destination from the beginning. We've been studying God's grace in Genesis, looking to see how his grace is there and present from the get-go, and getting an idea of what God's vision was for us and our lives and how our hearts are to flourish so that as, as a humanity we would uh, live meaningful and purposeful and restful lives. We get a lot of that from looking at Genesis because Genesis gives us a picture of God's destination from the beginning. And so this morning, we're going to look further into that insight as it relates to living life in the city. What does it mean and how relevant is it for us as believers in 2017 to live lives in the city uh, with the rest of God and the grace of God, the implications of the gospel in our lives, and what does this all mean? So today's text is going to be Genesis 11, and uh, we're going to read a very familiar passage from Genesis 11, and uh, it's on the Tower of Babel. And uh, you may say, well, how, you know, how, are we, how are we going to connect the relevance of the Tower of Babel to our lives? Well, we're going to explore this and see you know, the wisdom of God, because in this picture of one of the first cities that we get in Scripture, um, we're given great insight as to what God intends for us as those who rest in the grace of Jesus to actually flourish in the city. So I'm going to read chapter 11, uh, the first nine verses here. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. Now we look at this and we say, how is God's grace immediately obvious? It, well, it isn't. We look at this text and we say, how is it that we can look at this and actually be encouraged? Well, we're going to explore that this morning. This familiar passage of the Tower of Babel, um, which got its name from the Hebrew word confused, which is balal. Um, so when you kind of read it, it's like babel balal, right? And it's, it's actually intentionally humorous. In English, we don't get it. But in the original Hebrew language, it was, it was supposed to make the kids go, <laughs> I see what God did there. Because they were confused about this. Now, uh, 
the whole construction gets halted because God looks beyond what they're building. Right? There's nothing inherently immoral about building a city. There's nothing bad about building a tower. God looks beyond what they're building to, why they're building it, and he says, uh, you don't have a permit for that. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that we were created to thrive in a city with God at the center. Sin brought corruption by convincing our hearts that we belong at the center. And the gospel recalibrates our hearts to thrive in the city because God is our center. So let's look at this first piece. We were created to thrive in a city with God at the center. So God's idea from the very beginning was unity and diversity. From the very beginning. God's idea was a city from the very beginning. When he commanded Adam, he said, go be fruitful and multiply. The multiplication is having the children, but the being fruitful is to cultivate civilization. It is to go and to build cities. Then he said the same thing to Noah after the flood. Go and be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth. So God is looking for a diversity. And then he's looking for a unity in the diversity. And the unity, of course, being him. That there's all of this diversity over the, over the face of the earth, over the globe. But yet, even though there's great ethnic diversity and cultural diversity and cultural expressions, there's a unity, and the unity is him. That was his idea from the beginning. You may say, well, that's a stretch. How did you come to that interpretation? God's vision is a city. You're saying that because you're city slicker. No, trust me. If you're a theological entrepreneur and you come up with an idea that nobody else has thought of, there's a word for that in seminary. It's called heresy. So I'm not being a theological entrepreneur this morning and come up with this grand idea. My interpretation actually comes from, spoiler alert, the end of the book. You see, what God created at the beginning, his vision, is realized in the end. And what we find in the end uh, is this. We find some bookends here. We find that God wanted this diverse uh, civilization around the globe, and that's precisely what we see at the end. The Bible begins with a garden with God at the center. And the Bible ends with a city with God at the center. What was God, what's God's vision realized at the end of the book? When you read the end of the book, the spoiler alert, it's a grand, diverse civilization. It's a city with God at the center. So that's what he wanted Adam to do in the beginning, which he didn't do, which Jesus Christ, the second Adam, accomplished through the work of the cross, so that in the end, there is a diverse, beautiful, glorious city of all the, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, with God at the center. So I'll read a, a quick excerpt for you from Revelation 21, so I can, you can settle this in your mind, that we're getting insight into what God actually wanted for us from the beginning that he realizes in the end. It says, I saw heaven and earth, and it was, uh, heaven and earth had passed away, and then John writes, and he says, and I saw this holy city of Jerusalem coming down from the, uh, out of the heaven of God, and it was prepared in the same way that a bride is prepared for her husband, and then he goes on to write, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is finished. Does that sound familiar? This is Revelation 21:22. And he said to me, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So in the end of the book, we get God's vision of this great city. In Genesis 11, what we're looking at, we see God going down and going, no, 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 that's not the city I'm up to. There's a philosophical problem here. And God comes down and he says, you know, I'm taking away your building permit. So why does he do that? And so I'll say this for the kids, kids that are in the service today. Um, 
Revelation, I just read about it, it's, it's poetic. It's, it's what you call apocalyptic literature. It's poetic. It means, you don't, it means you take it very seriously, but you don't take it literally. It'd be like if your mom said to you, if your mom looked out the window and she saw that it was raining really hard and she said, oh my goodness, grab an umbrella, it's raining cats and dogs. Now how many of you kids would go to the window and go, where are the cats, where are the dogs, puppies falling from the sky? You wouldn't do that because you know when your mom says it's raining cats and dogs, she means it's raining really hard, right? So you wouldn't take her literally. You wouldn't be looking up in the sky expecting to see... Okay, you wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. But you'd grab an umbrella. So the book of Revelation, it's poetic, but it's describing something that is true and real. The city of God. It's not literally coming down out of the sky, bricks and mortar falling from the sky. But it is literally a diverse civilization with God at the center. That's what he wanted from the beginning. And so that's how we understand it. So cities were God's idea. Which is why we begin here. We want to see that we were created to thrive in a city with God actually at the center. So when you think about cities today, when you think about this great city that we live in, it's a paradox. All cities are a paradox because they're amazing, innovative expressions of human ingenuity. Cities are a place for God-given gifts to flourish and for generosity and for artistic expression and for us to pool our intellectual resources together so that there is scientific and academic advancement, technological advancement. I mean, they're, they're amazing. They, they, they give us insight into the glory and the wonder of the God-given gifts that God has placed in all human beings. They're opportunities for great uh, you know, generosity and love. And at the same time, cities are havens for crime and for violence and for financial corruption and for racial strife and the brokenness that comes from the, the dissolution of relationships that become bankrupt uh, through self-serving. I mean, the cities are a paradox. But we were created uh, to cultivate them, and we were created to live in them with God at the center. So what went wrong? Well, the second thing that we want to talk about is that sin brought this corruption by convincing us that we belong at the center of the city. We belong at the center of our lives. These ancient towers, so this Tower of Babel, it wasn't a one-off. There were lots of towers that were exactly like Babel. Um, these ancient towers were actually called ziggurats. And uh, the, the ancient people who built these ziggurats believed that you were building a staircase uh, to the gods. It was a, a meeting place between God and man. And so I'm borrowing from Kenneth A. Matthews, who's a historian who did some work in Genesis. And so I'm borrowing from him as I tell this to you. But there's an archaeological find in Iraq where there is a ziggurat that is precisely described in the way that, uh, the remains of one, precisely described the way that Genesis 11 gives us. The inside is brick, is brick that was uh, just dried by the sun, the outside are bricks that were burned with fire, and the, the mortar was bitumen. It's exactly like Genesis 11. And, and so this was all about, um, you know, building these, these staircases up to heaven so you could go up and knock, knock, knock on heaven's door. Right? That's what they were for. And uh, what's really interesting is that normally these ziggurats would be built to a, a particular god. But what is this Tower of Babel built to? Interestingly, it's built to self. We get that answer in verse 4. They, they don't say, let's build this tower to Marduk. Let's build this tower to the god of A10. Let's build this tower to Baal. Let's build this tower to, um, you know, Osiris. They, they're not building the tower to a god. They say, let's build this tower and make a name for ourselves. So the god of the tower is self. And God has a great idea for the city, and he has a great idea for civilization, but that's not it. 
And so the cultural mandate, of course, was go and spread over the earth and enjoy the city and enjoy human flourishing because you're glorifying my name and you're trusting in my name. Babel was all about glorifying their own name and trusting in their own name. It's actually the complete opposite of what God wanted them to be doing, which I'll explain in a minute. Actually, in 426 AD, Augustine wrote a huge work called The City of God. It's 22 books. And in the 14th book, which I'm going to summarize for you, Augustine takes time to contrast, you know, the city that God had in mind and the city that man kind of builds. And so Augustine goes through, and of course he's looking, he's looking back on Rome and the Greco-Roman world and what the cities were up to, and this is what Augustine wrote. Two cities are formed by two loves. The city of man is founded on the love of self. The city of God is founded on the love of God. The city of man lifts up its head for its own glory. The city of God says, you, God, are my glory. The city of man is ruled by the love of ruling. The city of God, people serve one another in love. So these people are saying, let's make a name for ourselves. And making a name for yourself means precisely the same thing today as it meant back then. It's this unrelenting, driving need to know that we are valuable and to prove it. It is to make a name for ourselves, uh, is to succeed in convincing ourselves and others that we're not just a nameless cog in the massive machine called the city. We're not a nameless cog in the massive mis- machine called work, uh, the, you know, business, the corporate environment, or the universe. To make a name for ourselves is this quest to silence the nagging need in our hearts to be seen as meaningful, to be seen as distinct, to be uh, seen as purposeful, and to be seen as successful. Now, you kids who are in the service here, uh, to make a name for yourself, if, if I put this on the ground for kids, it'd be like if you went to a track meet, and you all ran in a race, and uh, you and you and your friend um, won ribbons. And you look at your ribbon and you go, wow, that's really cool, I won a ribbon. And you come home, you show your parents, and they say, wow, good job, you run the ribbon. Great. And then you put the ribbon on your dresser. And then you go to school the next day, and your friend is wearing his ribbon. And then you go to school the next day, and he's wearing the ribbon. And you go the next day, and he's wearing the ribbon. And then you graduate, and you get into high school, and he's still wearing the ribbon. And then you grow up, and he's still wearing the ribbon. And because he's wanting that ribbon to tell everybody around him, I am fast. I'm really fast. I'm so fast. I'm so good. Right? Kids, understand? that would be weird, wouldn't it? Now, you could celebrate the ribbon. Wow, this is really great. What a great achievement. And you put on the dresser, and you move on with your life. But if you're, if you're a, an adult wearing a ribbon to work, and metaphorically speaking... Many of you go to work with people who are still wearing ribbons from different things that have occurred in their lives. And if we're honest, the reason we can recognize that is we do. Right? We can all do it. If you're not sure, you say, no, I don't, I don't wear ribbons to, 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 uh, to make a name for myself. I don't wear the ribbons of my achievement in, in the world or my degree that's on the wall or the grades that I have or my GPA or my bank account or the house that I'm, or my cottage or my toys or my what. No, 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 I don't do that. Then just ask your spouse. They'll help you out or a close person. Be like, well, there are times actually, honey, when you pin the ribbon on. Right? We all do it. I do it. I'm not immune to it. I'm not talking down to you like I'm some sort of, you know, if I, if I, uh, live my life to make a name for myself, then I'll walk up here wearing a ribbon. I'll use church, ministry, sermons, uh, metrics. I'll start to look at the church like a business. You know, how many people are here? Da, 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 da. This is all a commentary on my success as a minister. Right? No pastor is immune to that. Every single pastor and every single church has an, has a, has an ego problem. Right? Because we're not any different than the people who are in the seats. And we're all struggling with this quest to make a name for ourselves. And it's only by the grace of God that our hearts are actually set free from that. 
So we were created to thrive in the city with God at the center, but sin corrupts it and convinces us that we belong in the center. So where did the founders of Babel get this idea? There's nothing original about it. It's the sin in the garden repeated again. Right? In the garden, they said, they looked at the fruit and they said, maybe this will, maybe this will fulfill me. This will give me fulfillment apart from God. What is Babel? Babel is an entire city dedicated to the fulfillment of self apart from God and different from God. And so this is what we, we get in the beginning. What's interesting about it, too, is that there isn't one language, there isn't one ethnicity, there isn't one people group or one Christian denomination that can bring out all of the splendor of God and his grandness and express it in human nature. So that's why from the beginning God wanted diversity. That's why from the beginning God was like spread out over the whole earth. He wanted this diversity from the beginning. But the interesting thing is God is saying spread out over the whole earth and live fruitful lives and living in my glory. But the people of Babel said, no thanks, we're not going to spread out. We're going to build a city and we're going to congregate. We're going to do the opposite of what God wants. God says spread out. And what does it say if you look down in the text? Hey, let's do this lest we be scattered. It's the exact opposite of what God is up to. And uh, Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian. He's written systematic theology. He's written on political theology and the, impl- the implications of the gospel in, in the po- political world. And he's written on globalization. And I'm going to borrow from him here. You see, Miroslav Volf looks as a, as a Croatian theologian at Genesis 11. He describes it as a form of totalitarian racism. Because God is saying, I want diversity. And the ba- th- those in Babel are saying, we don't want to be diverse. We reject being diverse. We're going to build a wall. We're going to stand here. We're going to think the same, be the same, dress the same, act the same. We don't want diversity. It's the opposite of God's vision. And so it's beyond just a construction project that's gone awry. It's in their hearts saying, we belong at the center. And so uh, in the ancient world, these ziggurats, they were the most prominent places in the city. They, They... Really what they said was, if you come to the city, here's this ziggurat built to this god, and if you'll dedicate your life to what this god is up to, he'll give, it, he'll give you a name. He'll bless you. Right? He'll, 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 uh, he'll make a name for yourself. The question I think we have to ask is, are there um, metaphorical temples today in the cities? The promise is the same thing, and I'd argue, yeah, there are. Are there metaphorical, metaphorical temples in Kitchener-Waterloo that say, if you'll dedicate your whole life to this, uh, you'll make a name for yourself? So worship at the altar of this particular thing, right? Whether they're seductively promising. Serve that God of materialism or of political power or of financial success or of sex appeal or of the arts or of business or of athleticism. I mean, if you'll just serve the God of this particular city, you'll make a name for yourself. And in return, you know, uh, you know you'll, you'll feel meaningful. The pressure is real. The pressure in this city is real. I was reading an article uh, not too long ago about the two suicides that took place on campus at the University of Waterloo earlier this year. And there was a young student. She said something very, very insightful to comfort her friends who were mourning uh, at, the, at the memorial service for that student. Her name was uh, Dia Raman, and I want to quote her. And this is what she said to her classmates. She said, you are not your GPA. You are not your co-op placement. Very wise, very insightful. What was she really saying? That's not your name. But yet, whether whether you're a student at university saying, boy, i got to succeed here, or whether you've graduated university and you're in work, or whether you're raising a a family at home, or whatever, there's a... In the same way that fish don't know they're in water, we're in a cultural conversation 
about making name for ourselves and that looking like uh, looking a particular way. And so the pressure is inescapable unless when we go out into the city we already have a name. Unless when we go to school we already have a name. We walk across campus and we attend our classes to earn our degrees, but we already have a name. Unless when we go to work to use our gifts and our skills and our abilities in a way that benefits the city, we have a name. Unless when we approach our sports teams and we go to the, in the locker room and we're getting ready for the game, we already have a name. See, unless we're already named, we're going to live to make a name. And we're going to be crushed by this constant need to validate our souls. And the need to be deem ourselves valuable is going to be utterly tiring. So we were created to thrive with, in a city with God at the center, but then sin kind of corrupted everything and said, no, you belong at the center. So what's the solution? The solution is in verse 5. God comes down. The gospel recalibrates our hearts so that we can thrive in the city because God is at our center. God comes down. I want you to look up here for a second. This is today's text in the Hebrew. If you look up here in the Hebrew, this is today's text. For those of you who are listening uh, at home or at your cottage, hi, Redeemer, how are you doing? Those of you that are listening right now, I apologize, you can't see this. But I want you to just imagine an hourglass, okay? The Hebrew text converges in a point. This is called a uh, chiastic structure in Hebrew. And it does this all over the place in, in, in the Old Testament. Okay, Some, This is pretty extreme. They're not all this extreme. But do you see how the text converges to a point? It does that intentionally because it's trying to say this is the center of the passage. Right? Do you see that? And in the Hebrew, right at the center of the passage is verse 5 in your English Bibles. And God came down. So when we look at this, you know, this text about, you know, I've heard sermons and I've preached sermons in the past about, you know, Imagine, what's a, what, imagine what we can do if we're all in unity. Imagine what we can do if we all are one, of one mind. Look at the, God said there was nothing these people could do if they just got it together. That's not the point of the, that's not the, that's, God came down. That's not the point of the text. God's not impressed by their unity. It's myopic, misguided unity. God's not applauding their unity. God's not intimidated by it. God doesn't come down and say, oh my goodness, they're so powerful, they're so united, I have to stop this. He says, this is just the beginning of what they're up to. This is just, they're, they're already trusting in themselves. They're already making a name for themselves. And this is just the beginning. They're just going to continue on this trajectory of indifference to me and destruction and damnation all over again. I have to stop and I have to go and I have to interrupt this thing. And so God recalibrates our hearts through the gospel, which I'm going to get to in a minute, but let's just stick with why he comes down here, why, why, this, is, why this is important. God is not insecure. He's not uh, needy. He's not egocentric. God doesn't need our worship. This isn't, kids, if you're here, God doesn't come down and stop the Tower of Babel like he's taking a cosmic temper tantrum and he's like, that's it. I'm coming down and I'm kicking over your blocks. Okay, that's not what's happening here at all. God is the creator of the universe who created everything in sheer grace. He redeems us in sheer grace. He doesn't need anything. This is a picture of God coming down to say, uh, without him, we can't be fully human. He can be God without us, but we can't be fully human and fully flourish without him. So God comes down in judgment, which is actually a simultaneous act of saving grace. Why? Because if you've forgotten God and you're indifferent to God and you're building a city to the glory of yourself and you turn to your buddy and you say, Hey, Frank, can you hand me another brick? And Frank suddenly starts speaking in Cappadocian. 
That would get your attention. Especially when Frank isn't from Cappadocia. And he's suddenly fluent in Cappadocia. So when God comes down and confuses the language, this is judgment on the sin of self, and it's actually an act of saving mercy that would immediately get everybody who is curved inward to suddenly start thinking upward. Would you agree? Hey, Frank, pass me some bricks. Frank responds in Cappadocian. All of a sudden you start going, and in no time you realize there's a number of shifts that have taken place in the dialect. That would get your attention. Now, those of you who are university students, you're going to have, uh, uh, you have entire studies dedicated to philology, which is the study of how language over time uh, essentially evolved and developed. And so uh, it, it, t- it t- takes a long time for that to happen. And historically speaking, we have evidence of that. So Genesis 11 is not trying to get us. So for those of you who are on campus who somebody would say, you know, you believe in coloring book weird things because you think that God came down and all of a sudden, boom, everybody's there speaking fluent French and whatever. That's not what the text is expecting us to understand. Philologists will tell you that when you go back to the major breaks in language, like the major, the major divisions of language, they don't have an answer for how those major divisions would have ever happened. But they have lots of answers for the process of which language evolved. So Genesis 11 is what I am presenting to you. That is the divine supernatural major break that began the process then over the course of world history of the evolution of language. Okay, that's what's happening here. So this is a big deal. It's God coming down and saying, I need to be at the center. I need to recalibrate uh, you so that you don't stay on this absolute crazy trajectory of self-worship. And so here in Genesis 11, God comes down and he creates division with language. But you remember that in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God comes down again and he creates unity with language. How does he do that? The 120 are in the upper room. And God comes and he supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, causes them to speak in tongues. And the speaking in tongues in the Greek, the Greek word for tongues is glossa, which means native language. So everybody began to speak these native languages, supernatural. They go out into the streets, and they begin to preach the gospel. They begin to talk about Jesus in the native languages, that are, and they are heard by all the people there in their own language, the glory of God, the work of the resurrection, the preaching of Christ. They hear it. In Genesis 11, God brings division by language. In Acts chapter 2, God brings the gospel to all the nations through language. It is a great and glorious work that he does there. Uh, healing through the power of the Holy Spirit after the resurrection of Christ is what happened here what happened here at Babel. So when the Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, that wasn't supposed to be a private, personal, spiritual experience. That was a very public gospel ex- uh, proclamation. And that's what it was for. And so everybody in Genesis 11, all of the nations that were created in Genesis 11, who were created because of the division of language, heard the gospel in Acts chapter 2 in their own language, and the gospel went to the corners of the world. This is the great you know, grace and glory, glorious nature of what God did throughout salvation history. So from the beginning, God wants us to flourish in, fl- flourish in him. But Genesis 11, see, that's not the only time God came down. That's not the only time God, God coming down to do something was the point of the text. I mean, this is, this is a picture, not only of Genesis 11, this is really a picture of the, the flow of all of redemption history. And of Scripture, it all culminates like that. The entire Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. The entire New Testament is pointing back to the implications of what he did. The saving grace, the great grace of God. Jesus Christ was God incarnate. 
who came to the city, and he was rejected by the city, and then he was crucified outside the city, so that by faith and grace in him alone, we are now citizens of his city that is to come. This great redemptive work of Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the perfect life you and I could never live. And then he died an atoning death and he paid for all of our sin. And he resurrected. And his resurrection and gives us hope that in the same way he was raised, we will be raised. That his death wasn't final. Your death won't be final. And so now united to him, we are given a new name. United to him, we have this new name, and the name we have for ourselves wasn't earned by the work of our two hands. It was given by his nail-pierced hands. Jesus Christ provided everything for us that God required from us so that we have a completely different motivation now for using our gifts. We have a completely different motivation now for our work because we no longer need to use our gifts and use our work to make a name for ourselves in the city. We have been set free by the grace of Christ. We are his child. We have a new name. So now we use our gifts and we use our work to bless the city. We don't need to make a name for ourselves because we're already named. Our hearts that are constantly, chronically restless have been put to rest by the great grace of Christ. That we're not defined by what we do. Our name is is defined by whose we are. And this is the good news of the gospel and what we've been given in Jesus. See, the premise of of all of those ancient towers was that it's the same premise of, of dead religion. Hey, Work your way up to God. Hey, by by the work of your own hands, make a name for yourself. But the gospel is the exact opposite. No, God worked his way down to us. He came all the way. We don't meet him halfway. We can't meet him halfway. He came all the way in his great grace. We don't need to make a name for ourselves. We rest in the fact that in Christ, as his child, we have a name. That changes the way you go to university, you know, this next term. That changes your view of pursuing a career. That changes how, when you hear news like, oh my goodness, what's the economy doing? Are you going to graduate after spending all this money? And are you going to be able to get a job? That changes your whole view. You're a child of God. You don't have to clamor and claw and strive to make a name for yourself. You have a name. You're God's child. So now you have a completely different motivation for all of the hard work you'll do. It has nothing to do with earning a name for yourself. That changes the way you go to work. That changes the way you raise your children. It changes the way you view raising your children. If you put your career on pause and you're at home, whether you're a husband or a wife, and you've decided that you're going to take care of your children and care for your children, that changes the way that you view that. Because you don't need to make a name for yourself. You already have a name. Not by the work of your hands, but by Christ's nail-pierced hands. And if you lose it all, which some of us have, that changes everything. When we lose it, 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 we lose the job, we lose the career, we lose the reputation, we lose, it, 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 it crashes, it burns. The relationship tanks, the thing goes south. We're not left with an identity crisis. Who am I now? Oh my goodness, who am I? You have a name. It's God's child. And in this, Frustration and hurt and suffering and tragedy and sorrow, you're his. That's not define you. Whose you are defines you. A construction project is not an immoral thing. Building a tower is not a bad thing. God came down and yanked their building permit 
because they took a good thing, building a city, and they made it the ultimate thing. This defines me. The good news of the gospel is that it liberates and frees our hearts and we rest in the grace of Christ as we come and we worship and his word is preached into our hearts. And we eat and we drink at the Lord's table and we participate with Christ in the spirit with the renewal of our hearts. And you go home and you pray during the week and it ministers to your heart. And you go home and you read the scriptures and you meditate on the scriptures and it ministers to your heart so that you're free to enjoy good things without elevating them to become ultimate things, and then defining yourself and making a name for yourself by that thing. That mini-Messiah can't save you. It's incapable, and you will be crushed with the expectations you have of it to fulfill your heart, and it won't. There's no career, there's no, no amount of, of toys or relationships that can satisfy the heart. And so the gospel liberates us from all of those things. So may... Church, the Spirit of God, minister to the dark and unevangelized places in all of our hearts so that we stop trusting in little things to make name for ourselves. May the Spirit recalibrate our hearts to enjoy God and to worship Him as ultimate so that we can just enjoy good things without making them ultimate. May we turn from the endless work of creating names for ourselves because our hearts are at rest in the fact that united to Jesus Christ, the name above every name, the only name that ultimately matters, we have been given a new name. We are God's beloved. We are God's children. We are His. Let's pray.